everybody and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. We will be joined by the illustrious Sarah Marshall momentarily. We really get into it in this episode. We're talking about Jurassic Park with our great friend, Candace Opper. Candace is a fabulous friend of ours who's been on two episodes beforehand. One was a Laura Dern movie. We talked about Citizen Ruth with Candace. And before that, we talked about Jerry Orbach's uh, nipples, I think. <laughs> All by way of talking about Dirty Dancing. So Jurassic Park, in case you are a person who, I don't know, was in a coma for 30 years, Jurassic Park is a 1993 science fiction action film directed by Steven Spielberg based on the novel of the same name by Michael Crichton. You know the movie. It's got a big, beautiful T-Rex. It's got an adorable Triceratops. Uh, we have Sam Neill. Again, we have Laura Dern. We have Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, and a youngish Samuel L. Jackson. We had such a good time talking about this. This is a huge favorite of all of ours. As you'll hear, we get into it. A couple of quick notes before we begin. First, You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks so much to everyone who is part of our Patreon family community. We are so grateful. We have bonus episodes that come out for our Patreon supporters. Our patrons come out about twice a month. We'll have another one coming out in the nearest future, but it's going to be fun. That's the Alex Steed promise. You Are Good is also made possible with the support of Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K factory.com. Knack Factory is a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Uh, I don't know if you know, but we have a playlist that we put out with each episode. Uh, each episode gets its own playlist. It's songs that were inspired by our conversation about the movie and folks seem to like it. So remember how we released an album of songs called The Music of You Are Good Volume 1? It was all songs by our beloved music director and our producer, Carolyn Kendrick. We put it out on Bandcamp. Well, you can still buy it on Bandcamp. It's a great way to support that endeavor, but we released it on all streaming services. Uh, so you can hear that record uh, wherever you stream music, you know, maybe on Apple or I don't know where, where the hell do you stream music? Maybe Spotify. <laughs> you can find that record there. So I hope that you'll listen to it and I hope you'll tell some people about it. The music of you are good. Volume one by Carolyn Kendrick. It's out streaming. Listen, it's good. Hey, how are you doing? By the way, is everything good in your life? How's it going? What's going on out there? Uh, talk to us on uh, Twitter and talk to us on Instagram. You can uh, send us an email through our site. You can talk to us on the Patreon comments. I would love to hear from you. I hope everything is going as well as it can be in your world. All right. That's all we need to touch on before we get into this epic episode. This episode, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's as epic as Jurassic Park. That would be wild. That would be probably inappropriate and uh, inaccurate, but it's damn close. So hold on to your butts. Hello, Sarah Marshall. I'm trying to think of how John Hammond would say hello. Hello, Alex Steed. No. <laughs> <laughs> My folly is going to get you killed. Hello, John. Hello, John. <laughs> So what are we doing and who do we have? Oh, my goodness. We have our first triple threat guest ever, Candace Opper, and we are talking about Jurassic Park. Sarah, what happens? I honest to God can't imagine the person who has not seen Jurassic Park. They have been cryogenically frozen. They're a frozen bog person who fell into a bog and we unfroze them and they're living in a facility in the north of England and they're listening to podcasts. That's exactly what's happening. They were sleeping in the gaps of 1993 sequence DNA. Yeah. What uh, what happens in this movie? What's it about? Jurassic Park is about a beautiful young paleobotanist taking her boyfriend on a weekend vacation where she successfully convinces him to have kids. The end. I 100% agree. <laughs> what else happens? I can't believe I'm pushing you to give me more. <laughs> Jurassic Park is a Steven Spielberg film that I think is perhaps the crowd-pleasingest movie of all time. 
in many ways. It had unparalleled film and dinosaur technology. It was a movie that if you were a child when this movie came out, or probably even an adult, it just dominated all of culture (laughs) for a minute there. It was all anyone could talk about. And the experience of seeing the previously unimaginably CGI rendered dinosaurs in this movie felt like seeing real dinosaurs. We all felt like Alan Grant when this movie came out. We whipped off our sunglasses, hearts all aflutter. It's an adaptation of a Michael Crichton novel where no one is likable. (laughs) And predictably, as with Steven Spielberg adaptations, it's a movie where everyone is likable. Like Jaws. Like Jaws, exactly. And John Hammond in the book is like a barrel-chested, like scary, opportunistic CEO type. And in the movie, he's a very obvious parallel to Walt Disney. He's this twinkly Scottish man who wears all white clothing and who is like the adorable face of oligarchy, (laughs) much like Walt Disney. And the movie has all kinds of parables and messages about science and control and nature and technology and theme parks. It is a movie that I think was really, I don't know, just shows off filmmaking at some kind of a peak and also really shaped a lot of people. And uh, Candace and I are certainly among them. And I assume you as well, Alex, because you were a human child at the time. It's so interesting hearing you talk about like the before, before and after, because I am a person who at 10 years old saw this in the theater and remember the like... Oh, those are like, those are real dinosaurs. Right. So yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, and I remember the toy line from Kenner, which is how a lot of things were yeah. transferred to young children uh, in one way or another. Candace, what's your experience with this movie? I love this fucking movie. I've gone back and forth, but I can confidently say this is like my favorite movie of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. It competes with Ghostbusters, mm. which was also very influential to me. Yeah, so this movie came out the summer I turned 13 and I was just like bursting with, you know, hormones and puberty and all sorts of good things. Hmm. And it came at an interesting time for me because I definitely was a kid that loved dinosaurs. Like I went through a huge Mm -hmm. dinosaur phase when I was maybe, you know, seven or eight years old, like the typical phase as a gendered thing. It's generally more of like a boy thing. And Mm because I didn't really have any other friends that were girls who were really into dinosaurs, but I was. And I remember anytime I filled out one of those things for school, that's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you'd have to list like three things. I would always list movie director, pop star, or paleontologist. And I don't think I ever knew how to spell it, but paleontologists Mm -hmm. I always considered to be sort of like my fallback on career. (laughs) You know, like if Mm -hmm. I couldn't make movies or be a pop star, I would be a paleontologist. That's reasonable. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, when you're like getting into adolescence, you're sort of shifting away from those like childlike things. Mm -hmm. I saw this movie that summer and it just absolutely reignited my love for dinosaurs in a way Mm. that I was not really expecting, Mm. but also ignited so many other things in me. And I think it's interesting because the first time I was on with you guys, we were talking about Dirty Dancing, which I Mm -hmm. consider to be like the first movie that sort of like launched me into my real like love of cinema. And this I consider to be like one that sort of launched me into like a different phase of that, where I, it spoon feeds you these like beautiful metaphors in a way that Mm. someone my age could begin to understand what those meant. It's like when you read The Great Gatsby and you're like, wow, I I understood that there were themes happening there. I liked that. Exactly. Yeah. Like this was that movie for me. Yeah. Where it like made me think big in in a deeper way. What's the first thing that you remember that wasn't just like dinosaurs that stood out to you that spoke to you in an unspoken or subtle way? I think the most powerful line for me, and it's still powerful, is when Ian Malcolm, when when they're in the dining room, which I think is such an amazing scene, and they're having that argument about Mm -hmm. nature and technology. And Ian Malcolm says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should. And that just resonated so deeply with me. I saw the movie, I think, like three times in the movie theater that summer. And it, it just got me thinking in such like a deeper way about science and technology. So much of what we're doing and have done and just like our relationship with technology broadly, I feel like is totally like we're doing it because we can do it. And it's like, should we? And it's like, well, let's not let we'll, we'll worry about that later. Well, yeah, 100%. And like you watch this movie and 
it is reflecting on the past century, but it also is mm. so prophetic to everything that's happening now. I mean, what is Facebook but a T-Rex chasing you down as you flee in a Jeep? <laughs> in the form of your mom subscribing to ba- even worse ideas. Yeah. And like, you know, democracy getting stolen and so forth. And like, just because Mark Zuckerberg wanted to compare hot girls to each other in 2003. And there's so many incredible things in this movie that I just want to mention things as they come up for fear of forgetting them. And like one of the things that I noted as I was watching this today for the hundredth time in my life was that like Laura Dern is such a grade A scream queen in this. The faces that she gives when they're fleeing that T-Rex in the Jeep, like she looks like a tragedy mask. It's incredible. And like just her screams. She's amazing. I love her. Controversial opinion. Laura Dern is great. (laughs) I absolutely agree. Her yelling run. Yes. Yes. I love that. Like to herself, apparently, is my read of that. Yeah. I'm really interested in how dinosaurs are this thing of childhood. And it's so funny to me that like when you're a kid, your life is like school, eating, sleeping, running around. And then like potentially a large slice of that is dinosaurs. And you would think based on that, that like you become an adult and then like a significant portion of your time is focused on dinosaurs. And for almost everyone, it really isn't. <laughs> I, I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. What do you mean? Childhood involves so many dinosaurs. When you're a kid, there's just dinosaurs coming out of your ears. There's like books about dinosaurs. There's dinosaur themed apparel you just think about dinosaurs all the time like there are a lot of kids who just wake up and are thinking about dinosaurs and then when you're an adult like you either work with dinosaurs somehow or you just are expected to move on from dinosaurs like the average adult doesn't wake up and like go to the gym and watch their shows and go to work and cook and think about dinosaurs the way the average child does. It's almost like dinosaurs are kind of like a gateway drug to history. Like it's it's a way to get kids interested in history or this idea of the past or like this concept of the past being this this much larger thing than what you can grasp in your yeah. own life. And I have a four-year-old, you know, and so he's just starting. It's interesting to kind of watch his concept of yesterday and tomorrow, like the past and the future, but like that kids at some point have to realize that the past is much bigger than as far as their memory extends. And I think dinosaurs are like maybe a fun and easy way for kids to start to think about that. But Mm. that adults, quote unquote, know that that's not the most important history that adult humans need to understand. Like you can't like learn about democracy from it. You can't be like, well, when the dinosaurs said this, like, And like, right, and adult studies of history are sort of focused on like, how do we deal with what's going on today, as opposed to like, once there were some dinosaurs. It's the first experience that doesn't have to do with God, that is some sort of proximity to extremity and some sort of proximity to extermination. Yes. Those are two really important points of exposure that also like, are not immediately terrifying they're only approximately terrifying yeah they're obviously immediately terrifying if you think like there can be an extinction event but like really it's just like they're all gone and they're from before (laughs) the the deadest girls the deadest dead girls ever and the biggest (laughs) murder mystery ever yeah aside from the incredibly realistic dinosaur rendering And we could talk about, you know, the role practical effects played in that. And there's like so much to talk about there. But what was it about this movie, aside from its technical abilities that like made it become so important to you? You know, like timing could be could be the answer to that, like like how old I was when I saw it or or how susceptible I was to the story. I I don't know. I mean, I, I just think it was it was so big and it was so magical. And I. I don't know. I just feel like it spoke to me on multiple levels. Like it spoke to this childlike side of me that I was sort of starting to let go, but not quite, you know, like this push and pull of like pre-adolescence where I still loved how excited I got about dinosaurs. I loved the way it made me excited about that. But I also, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at that age, but there were so many characters in the movie that really like resonated Mm. with me, especially like Lex, I think, is a really great character. And we could have a whole mm-hmm. separate conversation about how kids in Spielberg movies are like 
kids in such a more authentic way than they are in so many other movies. Cause mm-hmm. these kids are like, they're not trying to act any older than they are. Yeah. She's roughly, I would say like 13. He's maybe like nine or 10. Here's a question. And maybe this is like forward of me to ask, but having once been that age, it feels like a totally normal thing to do. Do you think she's flirting with Alan Grant just a tiny bit? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Right. Because that's what I would have done at that age. Oh, yeah. I just sort of saw myself as, as an adult woman and I would have just been like, ah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought you asked if he was and I was like, that is a fascinating question I've never thought about. <laughs> no, he's not. But yeah. In her imagination, she's like old enough to like have that rapport yeah. with him because she sees herself as like bigger, but like she's a 13 year old girl. <laughs> She's just this little hacker. Who knows about CD-ROMs. Yeah. I feel like there's a sense now of like, you can't say that like adolescent girls like flirt with adult men. It's victim blaming. And it's like, no, it's not. Because it's like they, the adult men are still adults and it's still their responsibility. Like Dr. Grant, what if you think that's happening to be like, okay, you're a child. I'm just going to like rescue you from these dinosaurs and then reunite with my girlfriend. So it's not victim blaming to say that like, kids throw out stuff they don't understand the magnitude of what they're asking for anyway back to jurassic park (laughs) and this is where i feel like spielberg is channeling himself both in young and old in Mm. this movie in particular but in in all sorts of movies is like the kids are always so curious like Mm. kids are just like want to know everything in a way that's also not like could be read cynically in in, in, in an annoying way like although that is how i feel like alan kind of first greets them is he's like oh no i'm gonna be occupied with dealing with these children there's just like this innate and intense and kind of like ferocious curiosity among at least among Tim Mm -hmm. I like that a whole lot I'm going to make an off the wall hypothesis which is that like Steven Spielberg from what I understand was a kid who grew up in suburban Southern California like running around making little movies very ambitious and I imagine perhaps feeling empowered based on that ambition and I feel like you can see that single-mindedness and like the joy of that in Tim as a character, like the ability to write little kid characters who aren't irritating or just sheer plot devices or don't just act like an adult's version of a child, but not like a real child. I feel like that could come from some kind of a place of self-acceptance, because if you can accept your sort of original child self, then like you're not going to be wrestling with that baggage as if into a taxi when you write kid characters. I buy that. Who knows? Yeah. Another story about Steven Spielberg I like is that he put celery in his pillow when he was making Jaws because that's supposed to be able to help you sleep. I probably told that story last year when we made a Jaws episode. (laughs) I don't care. It's funny. I don't remember it. I feel like that's the first time I've heard that. I don't remember hearing that either. Okay, great. (laughs) It's a memorable image. One of the moments I love and that really resonated with me is the moment where the brachiosaur sneezes on Lex. Mm -hmm. I was a very stubborn child that never wanted to try something new and had so many moments where finally I decided to try something and it just didn't work out and backfired. Mm -hmm. And I, I just remember seeing that and feeling like that was just such a beautiful metaphor of my like whole experience as a child. (laughs) (laughs) It is beautiful. I also feel like between this and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I'm like, why is there a trend of like movies of this era covering tween girls and goo? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. It's because it's two. You need three to make a data point, but I'm sure we can think of a third (laughs) thing. A decade of Nickelodeon. Right. There you go. Yes. I feel like I do want to give a plot summary of Jurassic Park because I feel like that's just fun to do. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to do it now. Okay. Jurassic Park. So we open (laughs) with a scene that is etched on my child brain where we are transferring a raptor to a enclosure or something like that at Jurassic Park. A worker is dragged in to the raptor enclosure. The raptor is eating him. And we see our safari guy character Muldoon trying to hold on to him and like grabbing, holding onto his arm as it slides away and disappears. Like this is one of my indelible childhood images, this movie, this hand disappearing and going, shoot her, (laughs) shoot her. (laughs) (laughs) And then 
we smash cut to the lawyer for the investors, Donald Gennaro, who is kind of like a knockoff Mel Horowitz before Mel Horowitz existed. Yeah. Um, so Gennaro is talking with one of the guys at the amber mine where they're mining the amber that we later realize is where they get the uh, fossilized mosquitoes to get the blood out of the dino blood with which to clone the dinos. Like this is based on a Michael Crichton book, which I've read half of because I couldn't finish it because all the characters were incredibly unlikable. And I have a short attention span. Candace has read it. Did you like it? Uh, I definitely saw the movie first before I read the book. And yeah, I mean, it's hard to have an objective opinion on it after like watching the movie and loving the movie so much. Right. I read the book that same summer. I was like 13 and I, yeah, it's like all the characters are much less likable than they are in the movie. And less smart too, I feel like. Oh, yes. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it also, at least as far as like what is hinted at here, which I imagine is in the book, speaks a lot to like corporate fear stuff, mm. which makes a lot of sense. There's espionage. There are like non-trustworthy contractors. Mm-hmm. There's like yeah. all this stuff that you could see are the things that would go wrong within an organization to make this thing happen outside of just being a megalomaniacal asshole. Mm-hmm. And the book is definitely for adults. I mean, it's not like... It's not a family romp. Yeah, no. <laughs> What is like Michael Crichton's philosophical position? I think his philosophical position is you're all dumb. You're all terrible. (laughs) Aren't a lot of the books about about sort of organizational and corporate malfeasance? Like they're not. Is it? Is it? I don't know. I honestly don't. I don't know. That to me is the message I get out of this Steven Spielberg adaptation of a Michael Mm -hmm. Crichton. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. That message, yeah, like largely often applies to very powerful people in charge of making a lot of money. And then we are all at their mercy, usually. Yeah. Is he like a weird libertarian? Like, what's Michael Crichton's deal? I think he was kind of a weird libertarian. He was an incredibly tall doctor. Six nine. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. That's weird. And I'm 6'5". I know, but like 6'5 is like, there's 6'5 and then there's like Larry Bird tall. Are you like the cutoff before weird tall, Alex? I think so. (laughs) Sometimes I'll see somebody as tall as I am and it's like jarring. I'm like, oh God. Me too. When I see a woman as tall as me, I'm like, oh my God, I'm quite something to come across in the wild. No wonder people sort of startle. You, me, and Michael Crichton. Too much. Walking down the street singing. I definitely don't know enough about Michael Crichton to pontificate on his ideology, but something I've noticed in watching this movie many, many times is also mm-hmm. this idea of not just like the the technology behind or the science behind the dinosaurs, but this whole idea of uh, this like shift in technology happening in the world of work and how mm. this movie really pits technology and digital technology against analog and physical work. You know, there's this whole idea of is paleontology going to become obsolete with this technology? And there's so many little spots in this movie. There's so many little spots in this movie. Like Dr. Grant's not compatible. Yes. Because like originally Steven Spielberg was like, let's have stop motion dinosaurs. And then the CGI dinosaurs looked so good that they hired the CGI dinosaurs. And the stop motion dino union was very upset. Right. That Yeah. It's like the movie itself, like the, the making of the movie is like a metaphor of that as well. You know, and there's so many like little moments in this, like where Dr. Grant, when he touches the top of the computer, it doesn't work. Yeah. And he's, he's so anti-technology. And like when they're getting into the tour ride and it's just like. Hammond has set up this whole thing where they're going to sit in the tour ride and hear the explanation of it. But they like push the ride things open so they can get out and go into the lab and like that is dysfunctional and and they have these cars without locks on them and it's yeah. like really you didn't do that and their whole like nothing on the tour works and obviously their technology doesn't work entirely well because of the how all the dinosaurs in the park are supposed to be female but they didn't take into account the fact that the frog mm-hmm. dna changes sex at some point during the reproductive mm-hmm. process you know and then with all the fences failing and obviously that has more to do with Dennis Nedry but 
Lex brings it all back. Lex, our little hacker, she brings it all back. I also feel like Ian Malcolm is like an incredibly relatable character these days because like I've been kind of a pessimist about like the speed at which things are going to improve this whole time pandemic wise. Being the person whose job it is to look at people who are envisioning a system where everything goes right all the time and be like, that won't happen. You'll always be right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people will never believe you. It's quaint to think people wouldn't go to a theme park that features dinosaurs where people get killed. People would totally go to that. Right. Look at that park in New Jersey. People went there for decades. (laughs) (laughs) Action park. Yes. I feel for Ian Malcolm where, you know, he's someone who like sees what's going on around him and like can tell what's going on around him, has no buy-in from the people around him Mm -hmm. and is left to just know that his doom in one way or another is on its way. I hate being right all the time. Yes. Oh my God. Great line. I also like love his view of marriage, Mm -hmm. which is he's always on the lookout for a future ex-Mrs. Ian Malcolm. (laughs) I should look at things that way. That's less stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and he just la- he's just like so jolly about it. And Alan looks at him with disdain. He's also wearing a leather jacket in Costa Rica. Like he has transcended to another plane. <laughs> I love how they talk, uh, how they refer to him as like a celebrity mathematician and a rock star. I'm like, I want to meet a celebrity mathematician. Where are they? Was he supposed to be Feynman? Maybe. I think he's also supposed to be Michio Kaku. Well, especially like at that time, I know that he was a chaotician, 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 chaotician. This must be how string theorists were regarded at the Mm. time. As like hot. (laughs) These guys are zany and they're all under 40 and looking to mingle. There is something hot about physicists because they're always talking about like things that you can't see that are apparently happening, but you wouldn't guess that they're happening. So they're kind of like superheroes. <laughs> I still feel that way about them. They're like, listen, there's so much more going on. Yeah. I love like the subtle tug of masculinity between Ian Malcolm and Alan Grant. Mm. When they're having that first ride together in the helicopter and Grant can't figure out how to do the seatbelt. And Ian Malcolm's just kind of looking at him laughing, you know, and like. Grant can't figure out how to do the seatbelt. And Malcolm's like, I'm going to fuck your wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the look on his face. I'm going to do math on her arm, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> I remember the way his finger is on her arm more than I remember the dinosaurs in the theater. <laughs> I found it so sensual. Yes. Uh-huh. It is. And was 10 years old and was like, this is great. Yeah. But like kids know stuff, you know? Yeah. You're like, something's happening. But I like what you were saying earlier, Candace, about the obsolescence that's being that sort of is being revealed. And like, I actually think that like Alan is handling everything spectacularly well for the Mm -hmm. fact that he may be getting, he may be getting off an aircraft after all this is said and done and like not having a job. Unfortunately, he'll keep having a job because like, obviously I would think there would be more jobs in dinosaurs after this. Cause I was watching it and I was like, you know, these vets, like who's working here? Like, have they been working what animals have they been working with prior to like six weeks ago? <laughs> totally. That's, yes, that's a great question. How many people presumably in a specific kind of filmmaking were suddenly out of the job? Mm. The digital film revolution happened and like, ha- you know, happened starting around this time, although this wasn't digital film, but like this kind of computer animation started mm-hmm. to happen around this time. And then come like 2000, all film for the most part was digital, yeah. all effects were digital people who were doing what i wanted to do which were like practical effects were just out of the job largely yeah it tipped over very fast i feel like it kind of started with terminator 2 mm-hmm. yeah it was like terminator 2 and this were i mean just astronomical and you look at how much money they made and obviously everyone was like okay pack it in boys no more stop motion well, can you imagine how different this movie would have been if it was stop motion? I mean, if you I watched I rewatched the making of Jurassic Park video, you know, they showed some of the tests that they were doing with stop motion. And it really I mean, it really just does look like Ray Harryhausen. Like it's it's not yeah. it doesn't look like it has taken many leaps since the 1950s. And yeah, it would have been a completely different movie. I mean, I, I just can't even imagine. 
I think about things like this and I'm like, is there a cultural difference or is the difference that I'm no longer a child? But I feel like this movie felt special partly because it was this show of resources that like you knew that this was like the cutting edge of dinosaur and movie technology that you were watching. And it was like going to Jurassic Park because you were like, this is as far as science has come at this minute. Sarah, when did you see this? Because this came out when you were five. So you've kind of always existed in a world where Jurassic Park has existed. Basically. And before that, I lived in a world where the land before time existed. And guess which movie is scarier? <laughs> the land before time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I remember first seeing it with my cousins in Des Moines. So I would have been like six. It was out on video. And I just remember the scare with Mr. Arnold's arm being the scariest yeah. thing I had ever experienced. Whenever I'm watching this movie and that scene happens, I watch it like reverently because it's like little Sarah's first horror movie thing. And it's still so scary. It's so good. And I actually listed like how this movie works scare wise, because I think Jurassic Park is like Jaws, completely a horror movie and very rarely recognized as such because it also was successfully a lot of other things. The way that it uses characters watching the dinosaurs like eating a cow, looking at the remains of Gennaro, we see like people reacting to the aftermath of something or like the goat leg or Mr. Arnold's arm. So like the aftermath of something terrible happening, but like the amount that we see is incredibly small. And there's so much suspense and it works so well. I would argue that the big centerpiece scene where we get like all the dino action really, or the bulk of it is in the T-Rex going after the car. That's a scene that comes like an hour and nine minutes into the movie. So like past the halfway mark. And so I think the fact that we've been building to that for so long and then like that carries us to the end. It's a totally scary edge of your seat movie, but the way it uses scares is so smart. And there's not really hardly any gore in it, even though it's really about like getting attacked by dinosaurs and people getting eaten by dinosaurs and dinosaurs eating other dinosaurs. Steven Spielberg, I don't think gets enough credit for helping create the slasher. Totally. Yes. Which Jaws totally is, because it's a sexually violent movie also, which is key. You know, three kind of clusters of the more modern slasher of like post-Hitchcock. You know, you have like Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw. Mm -hmm. And Jaws is like the bridge between those and then Halloween and eventually Friday the 13th. Totally. Yes. And then you have this person who helped create the modern slasher, which is so funny to think about, like that the guy who made Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan helped create the modern slasher, just having an infinite, unlimited budget and the authority of having been him yeah. for 20 years in his career, just doing this. I mean, this is a beautiful kind of a slasher, almost kind of like structured like the Evil Dead in some ways. <laughs> yeah. It's just a phenomenal horror movie. And it's a phenomenal horror movie that I forget about because it has kids mm -hmm. because it was targeted to kids. But also I think it's kind of more effective in a lot of ways because it has likable kids who are on the line. I think this and Schindler's List came out within a year of each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like there are parallels, right? Like there's a scene in Schindler's List where a kid is hiding in like a little cabinet mm -hmm. because the Nazis are coming and that kind of echoes the kitchen scene. Right. They're, you know, hiding in a bathroom, even hiding from just this overwhelming force that's going to get you the extended scene and kind of the horror centerpiece of all this is children in jeopardy. Yeah. I guess comparing this to Schindler's list, like I feel it, I always love when you at least can imagine that you can see a director kind of working out ideas through dualities in the same way that Spielberg talked about poltergeist and ET being about suburban dreams and suburban nightmares. I feel like this and Schindler's List are kind of both explorations of the ultimate danger, the ultimate menace. And one of them is like, it's this force of nature that woke up and it doesn't know what it's doing. And that's kind of like the wholesome danger. And it's like a hellbent hyper-industrialization multiplied by ego. Yeah. Play into the motivating factors of, of course, rampant and intense anti-Semitism in the former. Right. I hope it's not diminishing to call Schindler's List a horror movie. Like, to me, that's a term of utmost respect. Yeah, same. It's how I access and touch a lot of my own horrors and anxieties is yeah. to see what's going on on screen. Yes, Candace, what do you think that this movie gets right 
that a lot of chaos and monstrous things are coming after us and there's action and adventure, et cetera. And it's also the 90s didn't get right. <laughs> I mean, I always think back to this class I took in college when I was a film student, which was just like a science fiction films class. Mm. In the first half of the class, we talked about movies from the 1950s and how the fear in all of those movies was just the other because it was you know happening during the Cold War. Science fiction in the 80s and 90s was more of a fear of technology and the technology that's in this movie is completely unrealistic. It, it just is like a few steps beyond what we're capable of, but it's still such a perfect stand-in for so many different things. And I think what it gets right is that it's not trying to actually imagine a futuristic thing that can happen, but it's it's imagining a thing that can't happen, but doing it in mm-hmm. such a way that it is so evocative of everything that is is already happening and will happen. And they're like, our plan is for everything to go right. And you're like, what if something goes wrong? And they're like, please see above statement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like the national response to COVID right now, or like at least the national response after Trump is that it's like the plan is to get everybody vaccinated. And then everyone loves a wildly out of touch billionaire. (laughs) Right. You know, I haven't read the book in a few years. But I feel like that is the hugest part of the adaptation is the change in Hammond and this idea of like making Hammond, like you were saying earlier, this friendly, uh, grandfatherly character Mm -hmm. who, I I mean, watching this now as a parent, I'm like, why the fuck would you bring kids (laughs) to this island that is being like tested for safety right now? Just unbelievable overconfidence. Dude, I found his I found his friendliness insidious. Yeah. In a way that I think Spielberg sees himself. Mm. Hammond's a creator. Like he has a singular focus. Like he's going to get this thing done. He's a visionary. Mm-hmm. Like I think that Spielberg sees himself in that. And But I, also like, don't you think that Hammond is Disney? Yeah, but I think I think more personally it's Spielberg. I think that there is a thing that Spielberg relates to with this character and there's a a single mindedness and he's criticizing himself. Mm -hmm. This is a person who does this in real time in a way that usually happens over like 20 to 30 years in a way that we can watch happen in sort of like a, you know, in a biography. We watch him do it at the expense of everything around him and at the expense of his family in a way that is incredibly off-putting and it made me find his like grandfatherliness even even worse because I'm like oh this is what you hide behind in order to do this mm-hmm. well he just seems so foolish in every way watching this now I mean watching it as a kid I, I just he seemed totally innocuous like you're just kind of like oh <laughs> he didn't think too hard about this did he but like you know watching it now especially as a parent you know that he like brought these kids to this island he like just threw all this money at this project he thought was just going to be really cool mm-hmm. and I mean we should talk more about how much weight Dern carries in this movie as a character like how much she has to do so much emotional labor so much emotional labor and the conversation that she has with him when he's talking about the fucking flea circus which is infuriating you mean when he's eating ice cream by himself four tubs of ice cream by himself (laughs) yes and the the thing that i find like so infuriating is that she like makes this whole lecture when he's eating the ice cream like he's talking about the flea circus and as though that is comparable to what he's done now and she is looking at him like, are you fucking kidding me right now? You're talking about a flea circus? And like, she has to treat him with these kid gloves, explaining to him like, no, this is real. People right. are dying. And then later on, when he quotes her and says people are dying again, like a fucking little kid who like can't have his own idea in his head. And he's just like, people oh dying i never noticed that to get his own way there's a smarter solution and he uses that to get his own way sarah before we move on on laura dern i do i do want to hear about the like how do you see this as a parallel to disney yeah oh he just is walt disney and i was watching this and i was like am i overstating this argument in my head and then we got to the scene where malcolm has his big speech and we hear a clip from a promotional video that's playing in the background that mentions on our jungle cruise (laughs) and like that's one of the original attractions at disneyland and he calls everything a track like obviously it's disney and steven spielberg helped start a company that was in direct competition with disney and that's why they made the land before time 
and the tension between Spielberg and Disney, I think like that's a way to be like, yeah, I'm a single minded creator Mm -hmm. who drives everyone to their limit to make a gigantic achievement, but not like that. Yeah. And then there's also even the debate between Hammond and Gennaro about like, you no, know, all families will be able to come here, not just rich families, which is like, who can afford to go to Disney World anymore, honestly? Who can afford to go to this secluded island? <laughs> to Costa Rica, all these working class families that are going to go to Costa Rica for the week. We'll have a discount day. <laughs> I love that it's so overt. It feels very aggressive. Do you even want to talk about when I talked with you about the flea circus thing and you said, is this, is is John Landis and I was like holy shit <laughs> can you talk about why you said holy shit about that well because John Landis and making a movie got people killed John Landis was one of the directors of the Twilight Zone movie which was a Spielberg project it had different segments with different directors John Landis directed one of the segments and in the course of making that segment they had child actors who were working illegally under the table who were being carried by Vic Morrow in a scene where they were having a helicopter being used and the heli- and I don't know what the findings were about who legally was at fault for this but essentially I think the lawsuit's still open. Well, there we go. So we don't know, but basically something happened this helicopter to kill these three actors, two of them children who weren't legally on set in the first place. And that apparently severed the relationship between John Landis and Steven Spielberg, who previously were close enough for Steven Spielberg to be in the Blues Brothers. Yeah, I feel like there's wrestling there with just the idea of like we make dreams for like these townies to go experience and pay us for. At what point does the cost become too high? And everyone probably has to have their own personal reckoning with that if they're making everyone enough money for people to just keep saying yes to them. And probably one of the only ways to define your sense of ethics in Hollywood is to define yourself against other people. I read the flea circus being like, we make illusions and I'd love to actually make something real. Oh, yeah. And I thought it was sad. And as someone who like makes little shows talking about other media, (laughs) And is apparently good at that. And people are like, I like that you do that. Keep doing it. I'm just like, is this what I'm going to do with my life? And I'm like, I thought I would do something more real than this. And I'm like, but what is more real than making people laugh? It's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Like things need to happen in the world and all of us have to do some of them. (laughs) Candace, you were talking about the lifting that Laura Dern's doing in this movie. Who is she in this movie and what's she doing? What what did you see in her when you were younger? What do you see in her now? It's funny that you say emotional lifting because she also is spending a lot of time like bringing people back down to earth. Yes. (laughs) Bringing men back down to earth specifically. Yeah. No, I mean, she, she is the moral compass of this group. And I feel like A League of Their Own is probably the first movie I saw, which came out two years before this, I think, that I identified like feminist feelings inside of myself Mm. watching Mm. a movie as a pre-adolescent girl. But watching this, I mean, I definitely remember the moment the God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs whole speech and her saying, you know, at the end of that, dinosaurs eat man woman inherits the earth and i just like remember being a 13 year old girl and just being like yes (laughs) it's one of those things like i wouldn't have thought of it and then she said it and you're like ah that's it you know like (laughs) i just remember that moment resonating so much with me and it's still like just like gives me chills every time i i hear her say it but i really love that dinner scene and i I brought it up earlier where everyone is sort of like throwing their ideology down on the table right Mm. and she really she's adding to that conversation absolutely but like she continues that conversation a lot throughout the movie and especially in that moment in the in the flea circus moment I mean, I haven't even talked about like my relationship with Sam Neill. <laughs> yeah, that's like up to you to disclose as much as you want. Because like whether or not he knows about it, it happened. <laughs> yeah, this movie has two like modern day zaddies oh, in it and it's fucking yeah. great. Yes. Not even counting Laura Dern. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
or to both of your points really about this being a movie in which a, a man is being convinced to have children and we have a bad grandpa and we have a chaotician dad of three children. Candace, you've been on our show before when it was called Why Are Dads? And we focused on dads. What do we learn in the pursuit of trying to convince Alan to have kids and about dadding generally and about the absenteeism of Hammond slash Disney slash Spielberg and the absenteeism presumably of Malcolm. Like what, what do we learn about what's this movie saying about dads? Well, also we should note that Lex and Tim's parents are getting a divorce. That's when the dinosaurs can enter the broken home. That's thing one to put you at risk in a horror dinosaur movie. (laughs) (laughs) And also the dinosaurs become their own dads. That's true. God. And it's funny because when I first brought this up to you both, a long time ago, I was like, please, if you're doing Jurassic Park, have me on because Sam Neill in Jurassic Park was my ultimate fantasy dad. Probably because I was also like, you know, becoming a woman and I acknowledged that he was a hot fantasy dad as well. Mm-hmm. I find it funny that the objective is to convince this man to have children. And I can't imagine mm-hmm. a worse series of circumstances under which to be with children. What about going to Disney World? <laughs> That is that is worse. It's funny to think that like the catalyzing thing that maybe sold him. I'm assuming he sold. I could be totally wrong on this. Right. Like maybe they get home and he's like, Ellie, that was great. I love those kids. I let's be child free. <laughs> and this is so cynical of me. But the catalyzing event is to like make a man have to come through for and protect children to convince him being a dad's a good plant. Like mm-hmm. I'm sold in that. Like I, I'm into that, but like, I think like on average of most men want to be sold on the idea that like, they don't have to do a whole lot. <laughs> it's not going to be very harrowing. Your ass is never going to be on the line. I know. And then like, maybe you'll convince them that like having kids is a good idea. And you'll be like, I'll take care of it. Don't even worry. And then that's whose Reddit posts you end up reading. <laughs> I'll do everything. You know, I've been a parent now for almost five years and I still have lots of moments where I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I think it's the it's the little things and the day to day that make me feel like I, I can't do this as opposed to the big scary things where your sort of instincts mm-hmm. and your emotions come through and you're not thinking about yourself as a parent. You're just like feeling right. this instinctual response to take care of children. And it reminds you how capable you actually are of doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like in that sense, putting him in this like extreme survival situation with these kids maybe demystified the whole idea of like being around kids. Like me, I think the longer you're not around kids, the easier it is to think that you would be a terrible parent. And the Mm. more you are around kids and you can kind of demystify the relationship between yourself and kids and being an adult to children and the more intense it gets and the, the more capable perhaps you realize that you are. The setup to him being with these kids is him having that exchange with that kid at the beginning and Dern says, well, I don't want to have that kid. Yeah. And then we see the possibility of the kind of kids he could have, which are like curious kids, like a boy who reads Omni. Paleontology kids. A girl who knows all about CD-ROMs, although that would be, that would be helpful for him at some point in the future because clearly he can't touch a computer without it attacking him. Um, (laughs) You know, maybe he sees compatibility in a way that he didn't see otherwise. Yeah. One of the things that you have to be great at to be in this movie, I think, is being able to deliver pure exposition in a way that makes it sound like you just thought of it. Like there are so many iconic lines in this movie that I remember from when I was a kid and watching now, I'm like, that's just exposition. This is just totally like you saying what's happening. Like, for example, Hammond, like when he jumps up onto the counter and he's like, what is it? Like, I've got a helicopter on standby at Giotto, you know, and he's like jumping up. So he's got that. That's how he says it. And he delivers it in a fun way. Like all the deliveries are good. And you're like enjoying hearing these people talk. I don't know. I think the performance carries so much in terms of not making the script seem really awkward. So much mm-hmm. of the time is just an explanation of moving the plot forward. They're like, I am doing this and here is why. Well, and also like the, the explanation of the DNA technology is so engaging. Like it's yes. not boring <laughs> at all. Like, Cause it is like a Disney ride. I would argue, I could be wrong, but before Dolly, the cloned sheep, this is how 
everybody learned about. Marcia Clark talked about Jurassic Park when she was explaining DNA to her jurors in the O.J. Simpson right. trial. Like Jurassic wow. Park was the foundation on which all American literacy of DNA was built, as far as I can tell. I think that that's true. I mean, the three minute animated scene we have explaining not just the significance of what DNA is, but what you can do with sequencing, why that's significant, et cetera, was huge for moving the public knowledge along. There's a whole world of wish fulfillment of like, what if I were the only kid in this theme park that this movie also delivers on? And like, the fact that they have Richard Kiley and the ride system, it's like they would do that at a theme park, like how they have celebrities narrating different attractions at Disney. And the fact that they have this animated, accented DNA strand explaining all this to you and in a way that a kid can actually understand, like I understood that that was enough for you to be like, I get where we got these dinosaurs from. Proceed. Well, and I get why this is significant in other ways. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting thing that this did that like Terminator 2 doesn't do. Like like, Terminator 2 is so, I mean, it's so fantastic, at least at the time, that it's not explaining to you why, you know, cybernetics is important. It's not going to be relevant to you when you're a juror in like a couple months. Right. (laughs) I'd like to see someone try, Me though. Too. <laughs> this movie is totally about doing that kind of stated thesis for the Disney company, which is like to make things for children, but also for the child inside adults and seeing Dr. Grant seeing the dinosaurs for the first time. Like, Where he just points and he goes, just goofily goes, that's a dinosaur. <laughs> like a five-year-old boy. <laughs> It's the only time he's like totally childlike. It's so great. Yeah. And we got to say like Sam Neill's amazing in this. I feel like if you were casting this at the time, I imagine that there were some in-studio people who were like, what? Who? Why? Sam Neill? Sam Neill. But like, he's incredible. He pulls it together. Like, Candace, I'm sure you have a thought or two on that. (laughs) I don't think I had known him as an actor before this. I don't think I'd seen him in anything. And he really stepped into my fantasy dad role for a long time. I actually had a very elaborate fantasy about Sam Neill that he was my dad and he, we had raptors as pets and I could also like train the raptors to kill classmates that I didn't like. So you also anticipated Jurassic World (laughs) 2. Yes. <laughs> and my fantasies were better than both of those movies. I will say. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure. What was it about Sam Neill that worked? I think I loved how undad like Sam Neill was and how reliable he was, despite being not dad like. And yet he's totally a dad at heart waiting to be set free. He's totally a dad at heart, but he's not a, he's not an actual dad. And, and so I kind of like the idea of, you know, a, a step in dad. Like I didn't grow up with my dad and I also didn't have any like positive adult male figures in my life either. So I was always looking for someone who could like step into that role. And it seemed like he he really respected those kids mm. and was fatherly to them, but also like treated them like adults. Like you want someone who like is going to be able to show up for something that they didn't have planned and not be an asshole, mm-hmm. especially to some kids. Mm. I, I wouldn't have been able to pinpoint this as a kid, but now looking back on it, I really was attracted to the fact that he was someone who like was really passionate about his work. Yeah. Because I think all of the dads that I knew... Hmm. were either dads who had, you know, blue collar jobs and hated them and just came home and drank beer in a garage and didn't talk to their kids or dads who had like white collar jobs and you just had no idea what they did, but they also just like worked and didn't talk about it and didn't care. It didn't seem to care about it. And And drank martinis in the garage, presumably. Went came home, went in their room and wanted to be alone, you know? And so this idea that someone could be so passionate about their work, but in a way that could also involve other people, like not, not be totally Mm. isolating about it was very attractive to me. Yeah. That's great. And I never really thought about the fact that like this movie 
you know, like, like it's like alien is so smart because it like goes into the vocation of like space truckers basically. (laughs) And like, and it, it gives you that as much as it gives you the horror. And this does the same. And there's so many ways that you can see yourself in the movie at whatever age, but also so many ways you can see like aspiration mm-hmm. yeah something i really like about jeff goldblum is that he definitely knew he was a sex symbol before anyone else did like now everyone knows but in the 80s i think he was the only one who knew but he knew i don't know man i knew as like an eight-year-old girl watching earth girls are easy well but you're ahead of the curve on so much though <laughs> candace <laughs> that's why we like you and like he's fully naked in the fly but like that's a david cronenberg movie so like you and david cronenberg you guys knew but yeah we're we're on the same page so malcolm gets goes on the snout ride grant goes in and is rescuing lex and he's basically rappelling down the side of this cement structure on a cable and so he goes up to the tree Gets him out of the car, like gets him to climb down as the tree is going to fall on them, which leads us to the iconic line. And we're back in the car again, which I think that's probably the Jurassic Park line that I say to myself the most. Mm. I say that to myself like once a day. (laughs) Yeah, I say it to myself like one out of every five times I get into a vehicle. (laughs) I love that you just referred to it as the iconic Jurassic Park line. Iconic for me and Candace. It's so great. Every friendship is a culture. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Thank you. We didn't even really get into this, but like there was a sick triceratops. She decided to like go off course and like try and help the sick dino who we don't get follow through on, by the way. It's fine. Well, they're all going to die soon anyway. So I guess it is, (laughs) which is like very dark too. It's like we get to save these people. And then the end game of all this is that all these beautiful dinosaurs are just going to like die on this island. So... Laura Dern, Ellie Sattler, goes to the T-Rex paddock with Muldoon to investigate and finds Dr. Malcolm all injured. And so they bring him back. And then her adventure for the rest of the movie is figuring out how to turn the power back on in the park, which they eventually figure out they have to physically go and press buttons in a certain outbuilding to do that, which, of course, you have to get through a lot of velociraptors. Also, this movie has so much going on that I swear to God, every time I watch it and get to the part where you hear Samuel L. Jackson's voice for the first time, I'm like, oh, my God, Samuel L. Jackson is in this movie. And it's always a surprise. It's how I feel about Goodfellas, too, even though he's in it just for like a second. Oh, yeah. "Yeah, Hell yeah. (laughs) The people at the pavilion, which includes Dr. Sattler, Malcolm and Mega Millionaire Hammond, have to turn the power in the park back on and figure out where Dr. Grant and the kids are. Dr. Grant and the kids have to get back to the park, which means basically they're walking through various dino enclosures for the rest of the day where all the dinos have gotten out of their fences. And it's like just a zoo where you've got a lion running around the giraffe enclosure. And so they finally get back to the main pavilion. There is a ton of cake sitting out. If I... I'm able to someday, I would love to have like a wedding or a big party where I just like try and replicate that cake situation. Yeah, all those pies and uh, jello molds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, the velociraptors have followed everybody to the pavilion. Oh, my God. They're like at the visitor center and the velociraptors chase the kids through the kitchen. We have a whole thing where Lex gets to have her moment in the sun and fix Nedry's sabotage and go into the computer system and turn all the locks and everything back on. Um, And then we have the amazing scene where they are escaping the pavilion and then they are being cornered by the three raptors. It looks like they're really screwed. And then who should save the day but the T-Rex who charges in and distracts the raptors and starts going after them. And basically the humans are able to escape the dinosaurs while the dinosaurs are eating each other, which I feel like is a gigantic metaphor. And I've never known for what, but I do love that that happens. In going back to talking about how this is set up like a horror movie, in this last scene where they're they're cornered in the middle of this big pavilion, these two raptors are coming at them from either side. To me, that's just like, 
this is not about you humans. Like you Mm. are not, this is not actually about you. You are not the center of this story. You are part of this huge evolutionary thing that is existing. And and you've somehow like tapped into the center of this ancient thing, but like, it's going to go on without you. They don't care that you're human. There shouldn't be any song and dance around how they attack you. Humans are just meaningless in this, in this story. You're just meat. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So listen up. (laughs) We know that Ammond is a dad. Mm -hmm. We know that Malcolm is a dad. We know that uh, Alan will probably become a dad. Who is the daddy? I would put my money on Laura Dern because again, I feel like she really carries this movie with her performance. And this is also an antidote to something that I feel like really flourished in the nineties and the aughts and really probably will always be with us because like the action lady who's like, I don't even notice that I'm doing action stuff. I'm an action lady. Yippee. And then she does a bunch of cartwheels and Laura Dern is like, she's very capable. She's figuring it all out. She's very fit. Like she's got the six, like she's got it handled roughly. Like she's doing her best and she's showing up and handling it. But at the same time, she is a paleo botanist. Totally. She didn't expect to ever have to exhibit this much daring do. And you can really see that in her performance. And I love that because it's inspiring to those of us who like to imagine that they could like rally in a situation which they are in no way prepared for. Laura Dern, daughter of character actor Bruce Dern. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, and I love Laura Dern in literally everything, but to this point, like all the frames of reference for Laura Dern were pretty niche and like kind of arty. She was in Smooth Talk. And then she's here and just fucking the best. She's so great. So perfect. And this is like a great example of casting against genre, right? And like Wayne Knight to this yeah. point, like I'm pretty sure he was already Newman. Yeah. That's how you put in your action movie. He got Newman and the girl from Straight Talk. <laughs> <laughs> Candace, what what say you? Uh I have to agree. Even though even though Sam Neill is a daddy to me. <laughs> and I think Jeff Goldblum is like the ultimate daddy of like my whole life. Mm. I'm the person who's constantly getting like memes and gifts and images of Jeff Goldblum from people I've known for like years and years because people just know I like Jeff Goldblum. But I should get you a Jeff Goldblum body pillow. I bet you would. Body pillow. You would. You, you need that. <laughs> I bet you. Yeah. Need that. It's holding you back that you don't have it. I'm not gonna say no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I have to agree. Like now, having watched it so many times, it's like. Dern is holding so many things together and going up against this just baseline sexism that she has to deal with from all these men. That's like, you know, the the part where she wants to go turn the power back on and Hammond's like, well, well, I should really go, you know, and she has to say to him like as a 70 year old who uses a cane. Yes. Who's literally done nothing right. Yeah. Who's literally (laughs) made bad decisions the whole time. She's the daddy. Shout out to Samuel L. Jackson for just really trying to hold it together and save the day, doing the best that he can. I absolutely agree. It's Laura Dern. And I think this is the clearest articulation in a movie that almost everybody has seen that a woman in Laura Dern's situation can be like professional, have her shit together, be great, all all that stuff. But then also has to, on top of a pay gap, spend X amount of time exasperated by Mm -hmm. the nuts men default setting around her. Mm -hmm. She has to do all the things that are required in this situation, plus explain to Hammond that he's delusional all the time. (laughs) It's so fitting and so prescient of like the startup culture we live in today that like you're on this private island with this entrepreneur who has put in jeopardy the lives of your boyfriend and his grandchildren and you have to comfort him about how his idea didn't work. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, that's what I'm sad about. And you're like, is it? <laughs> I also really love her relationship with Dr. Grant. Yeah. It's like you can tell they care deeply about each other, but there's no like someone needing to rescue someone else. There's no like. They don't manufacture weird friction either before no. they go into a survival situation. They're like, they have a pretty good relationship, but they're kind of debating the kid thing. They trust each other. Like, I think it's just a great example of 
like a different type of relationship that that just can exist in a movie. You know, like it's it's so good that I didn't realize as a child that they were a couple. Oh, really? Oh, my God. They're just co-workers who touch each other's butts a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my frame of reference for how <laughs> as a child looking up for how couples get along not like that right i know <laughs> and they're just like yeah and they're just not mad at each other the whole time like steven spielberg if you told me that his goal this whole time was to like propagandize for the american family i would believe you and i would think he had done a better job than anyone else <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you to our great friend Candace Opper. Thank you to Steven Spielberg for making this movie about dinosaurs. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode, for making it sound great, for being our music director, for being an all-around uh, wonderful person. You'll recall from the beginning of this episode that we just released The Music of You Are Good, Volume 1, which is now available on streaming. All songs performed by Carolyn Kendrick. Our, again, just fantastic producer and music director thank you so much to fresh lesh for providing the beats uh, in our show thank you to you our patreon supporters our folks who support us on patreon who can get bonus episodes etc thank you to you if even if you're not a patreon supporter but you're just here for a good time we're glad to have you find us on instagram find us on twitter i think that's all i have to say right now i've said a whole lot haven't i all right Take care, everybody. Thanks for hanging with us.